Gospels do this. Go to Isaiah chapter 11, and I'll show you uh, in my Bible. It's, it's almost right in the dead middle of the Bible, all right? I, Isaiah chapter 11. And we've been looking at Old Testament prophecies, uh, these uh, Old Testament prophets that are writing uh, 700, 600, 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And they're prophesying, uh, foretelling uh, the coming of Jesus. And so we've been looking at those. The first week we looked at Malachi chapter 3 and Then we looked at at Micah chapter 5. Last week, we looked at Isaiah 9, just a couple of chapters before this one. And then this week, Isaiah chapter 11. In many ways, there are some familiar things about Isaiah chapter 11, and you might not have even known this is where those familiar things came from. And you'll hear it uh, this morning, likely as I, as I read it in just a second. But I'll tell you, I was reminded this week as I was studying in this passage, I grew up, in the church I grew up in, we would pray at the end of the service a lot of times, the Lord's Prayer. Um, then we would sing the doxology. The, the pastor would, you know, be praying, and then he would say, and as the Lord taught us to pray, and then, and then we'd launch into the Lord's Prayer um, You know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And and we'd go on to it. And it was always, you know, depending on uh, who was leading it, whether it was the trespasses or the debtors. And if you grew up in the church, you know what I'm talking about. You kind of hang on until you see how they commit to it or, you know, whatever. And so we did that most Sundays, and honestly, I'll tell you, I, you know, growing up as a little kid, I don't know that I fully understood what it was that I was praying, which is okay. I, there's a lot of things I don't understand that are really wonderful for me. Um, but as I think about it, you know, I would pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, without really having any idea. What this kingdom I was praying for would look like. What does it mean? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Well, this morning, Isaiah chapter 11 gives us a picture. Isaiah's painting a picture. It's not the only picture in the Old Testament or in the Bible of the kingdom to come. But it's one of the most beautiful and poetic and descriptive, and it, and it sends our imagination into the highest gear as we think about the kingdom to come. See, one of the great things about this passage is Isaiah. He's going to talk not only about the first coming of Jesus, and he does, but he also gives us a picture He's looking beyond even into the second coming of Jesus. You know, the the first Christmas and also the second Christmas. When Jesus comes and reigns as the king. And so, I'm going to read these verses. um, Isaiah, or yeah, Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. And then I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll walk through them this morning. Here's how Isaiah 
writes this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide, decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. A little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire in his resting place shall be glorious. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, help us this morning to see the absolute and unfathomable, really, hope for which Isaiah writes and bids us to come and to, and to gaze at this morning. And so, Father, help us to do that. I pray you Guard my words, and um, Father, the, the things I say would accord with your word, and, and things I say that don't, they would burn up before they're even heard. And we ask this in Jesus' name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, to give you a little context, just so we know what we're running into, um, the, 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 the bad guy in the air, the, the bad guy on the street in Israel and Israel at this time is um, Assyria. They're um, way up in the north and the kingdom of Israel, the, you know, the David's kingdom, it's divided. Ten tribes um, have gone with the north. They are called Israel. Judah and um, Benjamin are in the south. That is called Judah, the kingdom of Judah. And um, by this time, Assyria has already come in and taken the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, into exile. And what's left is the southern kingdom, very likely, or at least that's what Isaiah is envisioning. And it could be that Hezekiah is the king at this time, and Sennacherib is the, you know, the king of the Assyrians. And uh, the, the king, as thir- you know, uh, Hezekiah, the 13th descendant of David, is there and worried and seeing that, that this, this nation, Assyria, has, 
has wiped out the northern kingdom and they're knocking on the door of the southern kingdom. And you have a nation that's trembling and afraid and wondering where God is in the midst of this darkness. And so in in uh, Isaiah chapter 10, God says, hey, look, I, I, it's true, Assyria, they've been the rod in my hand, that they've been the axe that I have been swinging to knock down the pride and the rebellion and the, adult, uh, the, the idolatry of my people. And I've used them that way. But Assyria is just a tool They're just a means, and they are not an instrument of total destruction. However, they will become the object of total destruction because they're prideful and they're haughty. And while they have been an axe in my hand, I am about to take an axe to them, and I am going to cut them down, and they will never rise again. There will never be life in the Assyria kingdom again. And so while God's cut his people down, he has left a remnant, but he's cutting down Assyria. Assyria will be gone forever. And then Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah is speaking into this. He is prophesying into this dark, dark time. Everything's cut down. What is there that is left? And so he says that there shall come forth. And you can read that at the beginning. It could say, and there will, or then there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, it's, he's writing, the future of God's people, uh, the, the future they were looking at, it felt much more like a like a Mad Max movie, you know, the dystopia, much more than a Christmas movie. I've just got to tell you that. And the light of the Davidic kingdom, like, like Chad was talking about this morning, the darkness, you know. The light of the Davidic kingdom was dimming. I don't know if you have any of those new LED lights, but when they go out, they don't just go out. They, they like get this weird dim thing. You, you know, I don't know if you've seen them. Um, if you cannot buy them, don't, but... That's the way it is. The, the light's going out. Hezekiah is the king of Judah. He's trying to keep Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, from storming the gates of, uh, of Jerusalem. The, the mood is things are hopeless. And the stump of Jesse, it tells us a couple of things. Well, first of all, what's a stump? Well, a stump is what's left of a tree that's been chopped down, right? And, and that is what the Davidic kingdom was beginning to feel like. and What it felt like to be part of God's people, Israel and, and Judah. It's this botanical metaphor. And the shoot, it's, it's, it's coming out of the stump or, or a branch that's going to come out of the tree. It means that you have someone who's going to descend from someone else. Um, you have someone that's going to come out of someone else. And in this case, he's saying that the Messianic king is going to come out of Jesse, who we know is the father of David. And so the metaphor is talking about a physical descendant 
of Jesse and of David. And, and when Isaiah speaks of Jesse in, instead of David, you know, he could have said a, a shoot that will come out of the branch of David. He could have said that. He, he doesn't. He goes back before David to Jesse. Because we're meant to think of a new David. You know, this, this royal line, even though it's, it's being whacked down to a stump, you know, pointing to what's in despair and, and desolate and, you know, the, the, the good days gone by. The tree that used to be the home to the birds and the shade to men. Tall and leafy and strong and stump now. And to go back to Jesse, it's highlighting, you know, the humility, the, the humble beginnings of the Davidic dynasty. And from one stump, he says, this little shoot is going to grow and it's going to become a branch and it's going to bear fruit. And the fruit it bears will bring about a whole new world. And Isaiah is sees that the Messiah will, will rise at a time when the nation and the kingdom, you know, will look pretty sorry and pathetic and powerless, but it will not be hopeless. You know, Isaiah, whether he's fully aware of it or not, is writing about a little boy who will be born in obscurity, more than 2,000 years ago now, with no status, he'll have a lineage, but that lineage will be of a failed ancient dynasty. And yet, he is the only one who will be able to save us from ourselves. It's the Christmas story. And it's bathed in humility. But it's also, it's, it's brimming, you know, with hope. And one of the reasons, and that you can look quickly. I'll show you this and then we'll move on. But in verse 1, you see you have uh, the, you know, will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Something that will come out of the stump of Jesse. But look over in verse 10. I want you to see something really quick. He, he begins again. He says, in that day... The root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples. In verse 1, you have a shoot that comes from Jesse. In verse 10, he also, though, is the root of Jesse. And, and I think Isaiah, he's making this deliberate connection. And he's, and he's signaling something that's meant to catch our eye. And he's subtly alerting us to some of the deepest and most profound and mind-boggling and hopeful theology in all the Bible. To say the root of Jesse is to say that this one that is to come is also the source and the origin of Jesse, from whom Jesse comes from. So, so he's saying about this Messiah to come. He, he's human. He'll have a family tree. He'll, he'll have 
grandparents and great-grandparents and can take a 23andMe test and find out all that's in his blood. At the same time, he is divine in nature. On the one hand, he's the seed of Jesse. On the other hand, he's the source of Jesse and David. He's the offspring of Jesse. But he's also from whom Jesse originates. Actually, Isaiah, he's been pounding this into us all along. If we were to start in chapter 7 and read all the way through chapter 11 and into chapter 12, you'd see that he's been talking to us about one. He says in chapter 7, he says, this one, this is a sign. He'll be born of a virgin and you'll call his name Emmanuel. You're going to call him this one that's to be born, this Messiah that's come. You're going to call him. You're going to say about him. He's God with us. Last week, we saw in Isaiah 9, he will be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. The New Testament points to it. You could go to Revelation chapter 5, and they're looking to see who is worthy to open the scroll One of the elders shouts, weep no more, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is conquered. At the very end in Revelation 22, 16, Jesus' own words, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright morning star. I'm the creator God who wrote myself into history. I am who all families on earth get their name from and at the same time, I was born into a family. Stepped out of eternity and into history and took on humanity. It's the Christmas story. And it, and it shines bright with hope for us. Now, not only is he going to have a royal lineage, he's going to be divinely empowered. And, and, and that's what it means in verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He'll have discernment. He'll have wisdom and ability to use that wisdom. Counsel and, and might. He'll, he'll know the right thing to do and have the power to do it. knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Unlike every other human being that has ever been a leader in the history of the world, Jesus is literally qualified to rule the world. This is what we're hearing. In the beginning of verse 3, 
He, he says, uh, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. There is so much to say about this. I don't have the time. But the fear of the Lord, think about it this way. The Old Testament, the Old Testament longs for us to grab hold of the fear of the Lord. In fact, the opening chapters of Proverbs bids us to come and, and, and to dive headlong into the fear of the Lord. But it's a frightening thing, right? can be. Unsettling it at times. Maybe even confusing. Well, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Am I to be afraid of the Lord? Am I to be in awe of the Lord? Is it merely worship? Or how do I fear the Lord when I'm caring for my children or at the grocery store or... See, we look at Jesus, and what this text is telling us is that the life of Jesus, we can read in the Gospels, it is this perfect picture of how Jesus does this perfectly, and he did it with delight. And so when he calls the disciples, or he seems infinitely patient with them, or he encounters the leper, or the widow, or the adulteress. And the love of God comes pouring out. You're seeing, you're seeing in Jesus his delight in the fear of the Lord. It's when he gets up early in the morning to go spend time in prayer with the Father. It's, it's when he comes into the temple and he sees the money exchangers and goes away and fashions a whip and comes back and in his anger expels them from his father's house. It's humility and it's righteousness and it's justice and, it's, and that's, that's how it comes out and, and he delights in it. And then we find he's the, he is the perfect ruler, the righteous judge who will make things right. The second half of verse 3, he's going to rule in truth. He, he will not judge by only what his eyes see or what his ears hear. His discernment goes beyond the, the, the outside and the superficial, and he gets down below the surface, and he sees into hearts and into motives. And he decides with clarity and with accuracy. And here's what that means this morning. No matter who you think that you are fooling, even if it is the person that you look at in the mirror, you cannot fool him. He judges and rules in truth. He rules in justice and Beginning of verse 4, he's the king who puts things right. The helpless and the afflicted. This is, Isaiah zeroes in on this and says that they'll be made right. He'll judge them rightly. They will get fairness. Because if they get their rights, everybody else will. He rules with power, the end of verse 4. says he um, 
He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Could write Revelation 19 out beside that. Where Jesus comes on the white horse, dressed in white, with an army of angels that he does not need, by the way. And with a word, he will fell his enemies. In verse 5, his reign is anchored in righteousness and faithfulness. Can you even imagine? Can you even imagine what it would be like to have a king or a ruler or a president or a pastor anchored in righteousness and faithfulness and truth and justice? No scandals, no conspiracies, no nonsense. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Our heart sings for that, doesn't it? I mean, we long for it. I, you, you read this. I'll be sorry I said this. You, you read this and you see, look, Isaiah is settling for nothing less. This is our hope. This is the hope. And anything short of this is not hope. It is delusion. We... We will not. It is impossible. It is, it is impossible that we could possibly elect anybody for anything that could bring this to pass. Oh, be careful where your hope is. Be careful what we call righteous. Be careful what we would proclaim to be truth. Be careful. Oh, we have a hope. We're not given to delusions. My email is fritz at Bethelbible.com. Six through nine, that sounded familiar to you, right? Paradise regained. You know where the, the little toddler has a pet cobra? Listen, the reign of Jesus as the king. So let's be clear. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Who's the king? Jesus is the king. But there is a day when he returns at the second Christmas. When he'll be seated in Jerusalem on the Davidic throne. And not only will he be anchored with righteousness and faithfulness and rule the peoples. He will set right creation and nature. Romans 8 tells us that creation 
longs for this day. It groans. He will rid the world of violence and suffering and fear and disease and death. And little children will play with cobras. And you think, well, what is this the answer to? What questions being asked that this answer? I don't know, but I'll tell you, I have way more questions than I do answers when I come away from that. Notice, it's, there's an earthiness of the kingdom. Shouldn't surprise us. What's the prayer? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The Bible always sees that there is a earthly kingdom in which the king will reign. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that'll be a thousand years, a thousand year millennial reign. Now, I have friends that I love and that love Jesus and I'll tell you, there's no, there's no millennial reign. I don't know how you get around it. That's what Isaiah says. That's what John says in the Revelation. Jesus will reign. And then after that, guess what? There's a new heaven and a new earth. This might absolutely, totally undo you, but your hope is not in life after death. It is in life after, life after life after death. When you are resurrected to a new body, a physical body, and you will live on the new earth forever. We think, oh, we'll be in the clouds with the fat angels and play the harp. It's not what we're going to be doing. We're going to live on the earth. And Jesus will reign the cosmos from his throne. And he will impose a righteousness and peace that follows, unlike any peace that anybody today is trying to concoct or manufacture it. It's a peace that can only result from the victory that he will win. And yet, here's the thing. It's not only a last things in the future, in the millennia kind of piece. You go to Ephesians chapter 2, and you know what it tells us? That the death of Jesus, the life, the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus has afforded us peace even now. Peace one with God by grace through faith in Christ alone. We can be reconciled at peace with God. Even though you can look back and see the stain of sin, the littering of things you should be condemned for, and I. And yet Jesus came. And Paul says he became our sin and died our death so that we could become his righteousness. He has made the way for peace, the prince of peace. But then you go on and you read further in Ephesians chapter 2. And not only peace with God, but peace with one another. That the death of Jesus on the cross has made peace. 
I, I don't know where you're. I'm not speaking to any one person this morning, but I'm speaking to all of us. Peace. Are there things you? Here's what I know. I have friends whose marriages desperately need the Prince of Peace. That they would lay that marriage right before the Prince of Peace. Family members, kids, maybe parents. You know, those relationships where we feel like it's toddlers and cobras trying to get along. Of course, I'm the toddler and they're the cobra. I mean, that's how it always goes. No, no one can bring these things together. No, no one can heal this bridge. No one can cross the chasm. You don't know the things I've said. You don't know the things they've said. I don't, but he does. The prince of peace, the hope of the world. that comes out of the stump. Isaiah's talking about. Dale Ralph Davis illustrates this. He says it this way. He says, I remember seeing a car in our area of northwest Baltimore some years ago. It was a station wagon model and a fairly substantial one, you know, a Buick or Nosemobile. And it wasn't a late model. And the owner had lathered the rear bumper and tailgate with a plethora of stickers. And in all the verbal litter, there was one sticker that was very clear. In the lower left-hand corner of the tailgate, and it read, this car is not abandoned. And the wisdom of the sticker is obvious, he says, because it did look precisely like that. So Isaiah's doing something like that with us. Listen, God's kingdom, it can, sometimes looks like it, it's an abandoned kingdom. But these are just the kinds of circumstances that God steps into. This, this is just when he brings the hope. This is when the, the twig begins to appear. That God begins or he renews what he's doing in the midst of hopelessness and ruin and helplessness and weakness. So if that's where you are this morning, there is hope. But it doesn't come from you. It comes only from God. Let me ask you this morning. What are you basing your life on? What, what, what are you grounding your hopes in? You know, there's inevitable suffering that's coming. For all of us, you're not going to, you don't get from here to there. Without suffering. Where are your hopes grounded? In the face of death. What are you hoping to. Make you feel like you're worth something. 
your bank account or your career, a relationship, some kind of popularity or intelligence or whatever it is. There's a whole slew of things we find ourselves counting on. What are you hoping in to get you through it all? If it is anything but God himself, then what you have bought into is the wisdom of the world. In our study of 1 Corinthians this year, we have seen that what God excels at with great joy is to take the wisdom of the world and to flip it on its head and make it visible and clear as the foolishness it is. Whatever you are counting on in your life, apart from God, it will disappoint you. It will leave you or desert you or get old or stale. And leave you in a constant look for something else. Everything does. And see, this is Christmas. This is what we remember at Christmas. That God has revealed himself. He has, he has stepped into our history. He has become physically, humanly part of our story. And he's come to do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. He has come miraculously breaking into this world. And it's for us to embrace as our king. He's our king. And that's the hope of Christmas. Dead things have the hope of coming to life. The disappointments and the defeats suffering and grief all the things that are hopeless and all the things that remind us how helpless we are God steps in that's where he grows or renews have you given that to him Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth, even right now, as it is in heaven. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray you'd just crash right into the middle of our lives with hope this morning. I know, there's some that stepped in here and things feel hopeless or too hard or grief is too heavy or relationships too complicated or the distance between here and there just feels too far this morning well that's the way it felt when Isaiah wrote these words maybe Father, I imagine the humanity of, of Isaiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing these words, wondering 
Oh, when will this be? And so, Father, I pray you grant us the faith this morning to take hold of you. We want more than just the sentiment of a baby in the manger, Father. We want to gaze into the Son of God, our Lord and King. Who's the hope of the world. Father, there are some this morning that absolutely without reservation need to say, okay, you're mine. My life is yours. And and I've been trying to hang on to too much of it all on my own. So, some of those people need courage to do that, to just hand it all to you. Others, some need the faith and hope to do it, to really believe you, really trust you. I pray that you grant them that. Father, for all of us, would you draw us to the clear, beautiful, powerful, peaceful vision of your Son, Jesus, in our life. And so we ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, if you would stand with me to be dismissed, I want to remind you of... um, So next Sunday, we have these little things, if you can't remember it, Um, but next Sunday is Christmas Eve and we really dig Christmas Eve around here. All right. So what what in the morning, we're going to have a 1030 family service, which means we'll watch your tiniest ones, but we're going to come and we'll worship and sing together and do all that and be very Christmassy. And then that night, we're going to have a Christmas Eve night service and a candle lighting. So let me say this. They're both super Christmassy. They'll be different. Come to one or come to both. It, you know less good if you don't come to both. I mean, not in God's eyes anyway, all right? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. Pick which is best for your family, and you guys come and celebrate and worship together with the body of Christ, whether it's morning or whether it's evening. You're welcome to either or both, and can't wait to, to see you next week. May the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you. Amen.